Here's how it works. You need to have 100 points to get into heaven. You tell me about all the good things you've done. They are all worth a certain number of points. If your total is 100 or more, you can come in. Well, says the man, I was happily married to the same woman for 52 years. I never looked at another woman. I was attentive and loved her dearly. That's great, said St. Peter. That'll be two points. Hmm, <laughs> said the man. This is going to be harder than I thought. Well, I attended church regularly, volunteered my time, and tithed faithfully. Wonderful, said St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg said that's enough. What point, says the man? Okay, okay, I was involved with a prison ministry for 25 years. I went into the prison at least monthly and shared Jesus with them. Wow, says St. Peter. That's another two points. Only two points, says the man. At this rate, it'll only be by the grace of God that I'll ever get into this place. <laughs> Bingo, says St. Peter. That's 100 points. This semester, we will be completing our study in the book of Romans, starting in chapter 11, and then explore 12 messianic psalms, especially for those ladies who are new to the study this semester. I'd like to review some of what we've already learned in Romans in the first semester. I have several handouts for new ladies which will be helpful studying Romans. One is called My Romans Dictionary, which gives the meaning of different words found in the book and is helpful to use as a reference. The other handout is entitled Some Subjects Dealt With in the Book of Romans, which is also valuable for this study. That's what this is here. If you weren't here last semester to pick up Lesson 1 of Romans, to which they were attached, I have copies of them on the table next to me. Please feel free to take one and don't forget to pick up your current lesson being distributed at the door on the way out. The Book of Romans has been used to bring people to faith in Christ, but it is not primarily a book for unbelievers. It is the plan of salvation taught to those who are already believers. Romans is the gateway to other writings in the New Testament and must be understood first. No one knows how the church in Rome came into existence. No apostles started the church in Rome. Not Peter, not Paul. If another apostle had started the church, Paul would not interfere. Romans 15.20 says, I always want to preach the good news in places where people have never heard of Christ because I do not want to build on the work someone else has already started. The church may have been founded by people in Asia Minor who were converted on the day of Pentecost. No one knows for sure. The letter was written by Paul from Corinth toward the close of his third missionary journey when he was preparing to go to Palestine to deliver an offering to the poor church in Jerusalem. There were three reasons why Paul wrote the letter. Phoebe, who Paul describes as a servant of the church and a helper of many, was going to Rome and needed a letter of recommendation. 
Also, it had been 20 years since his conversion, and he had never been there and wasn't sure he'd ever get there. Finally, the main reason Paul wrote the letter is because the church had no apostolic leader to lead them in faith. Paul wanted to make sure they understood the foundation of their faith. So the letter is primarily doctrine and contains some, but not much, historical material. Rome was the New York City of its day, where great thinkers and intellectuals lived, the most strategic place, the center of paganism. All roads led to Rome and also out of Rome. If the faith was going to be spread out of Rome, believers needed to be grounded in the truth. Paul wanted them to understand their foundation and that their salvation is consistent with the attributes of God, particularly righteousness. There's only one way to interpret Romans. It is the righteousness of God. Christ personally took hold of Saul, who was on his way to Damascus, and who at the time was a Pharisee and a persecutor of Christians. Acts 9, 1-9 describes Saul's conversion to Paul. He went away to Arabia for three years to be taught personally by Christ himself. He says in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in his letter to the Romans, Paul is declaring the gospel and revelations that came directly to him from Christ himself. The primary theme, the primary truth of Romans is the righteousness of God, that God justifies guilty, condemned, condemned sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The most stable Christians are those who understand God's righteousness as revealed in the gospel message. They understand that if it's God's way, then it's perfect. They're not shaken by what happens in their lives. They trust and rest in God. They hold fast to the truth and are not troubled by philosophies claiming that God is unjust and not swayed when theologians try to redefine sin. Romans is about the righteous dealings of a righteous God dealing with unrighteous people, changing them into righteous people. Not perfect people, righteous people. In doing this, God is not tainted with our sin. He saves unrighteous people without compromising his own righteousness. In chapter 1, Paul greets the Roman church and introduces himself to them. He commends them and thanks God for them because their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. In verses 14 through 17, he tells them, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith quoting Habakkuk 2.4. These verses in chapter 1 are the basis for the entire letter. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ which Paul will teach and explain in the following chapters. Neither ridicule, criticism, nor physical persecution could curb Paul's boldness. 
He was afraid of nothing because it is the power of God to save people, both Jews and Gentiles. After introducing the righteousness that comes from God to the Romans, Paul goes on in chapter 1 to describe the corruption and unrighteousness of man and God's wrath on them. They have no excuse because he has made himself visible to them in creation. It's called general revelation. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verses 21 and 23 details man's corrupt thinking. They knew God, but they did not give glory to God or thank him. Their thinking became useless. Their foolish minds were filled with darkness. They said they were wise, but they became fools. They traded the glory of God who lives forever for the worship of idols made to look like earthly people, birds, animals, and snakes. Verses 24 and 25 is God's response to them. Because they did these things, God left them and let them go their own sinful way, wanting only to do evil. As a result, they became full of sexual sin, using their bodies wrongly with each other. They traded the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served what had been created instead of the God who created those things, who should be praised forever. Amen. These people were pagans, and God's judgment on them is deserved. But Paul goes on in chapter 2 to describe people who were religious moralists, Jews and Gentiles who looked down on these pagans and were judging them. Self-righteous moralists who thought that because they did not participate in pagan excesses, that they were exempt from God's judgment. Paul says, no, they are not exempt. Chapter 2, verse 3. You judge those who do wrong, but you do wrong yourselves. Do you think you'll be able to escape the judgment of God? Outwardly, they may appear to be good. We all know people like that. But inwardly, they are not. These people have more knowledge than the immoral pagan and therefore have greater accountability. If a person can judge another's behavior, they have the knowledge to judge their own sin. But in their condemnation of others, these folks have excused and overlooked their own sins. God will not. Their supposed good works will not help them. Man without Christ is condemned, both Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who's do who does good. There is not even one. Jews thought that because they were God's chosen people, what they had to do was follow the law of Moses, the commandments, and that would get them into heaven. Many people think that even today. But Paul explained, no, that they were incapable of following the law because for them to save themselves, it had to be followed perfectly from the time of their first breath to their last. They had to be sinless, 
which is impossible, as the verses I just read explained. The purpose of the law is to show all of us our sin, to show mankind we are incapable of obeying God's righteous demands and to drive people to Christ. None of us is capable of perfectly following the law. Perfect Christ alone brings salvation. And circumcision wouldn't save them either. They thought their circumcision, a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, which set the Jews apart, would get them into heaven. But no. Abraham, father of the Jewish nation, was considered righteous by God well before he was circumcised. Paul points that out in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So what can we say that Abraham, the father of our people, learned about faith? If Abraham was made right by the things he did, he had a reason to brag. But this is not God's view, because the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and God accepted Abraham's faith, and that faith made him right with God. Abraham, just like us, was justified by faith, not works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Everything comes from God. Even our faith comes through the grace of God. Nothing comes from us. We have no reason to boast. Before God called us, we were helpless sinners, unable to help ourselves. Sin came into the world through the disobedience of Adam, and the penalty for sin is death. We are Adam's descendants and have inherited his sinful nature. We were doomed to suffer the full wrath of God. But God, in his love for us, gave us a Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins so we wouldn't have to. Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, folks. Verse 8 through 10. But God shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So through Christ, we will surely be saved from God's anger, because we have been made right with God by the blood of Christ's death. While we were God's enemies, he made us friends through the death of his son. Surely now that we are his friends, he will save us through his son's life. Believers have been reconciled to God. Restored. My Romans dictionary says reconciliation, reconciled, means the restoration of friendship and fellowship after estrangement. By the death of Christ, mankind's relationship to God has altered, making their salvation now possible. God has become reconciled to man although man is not reconciled to God until he trusts in Christ's sacrificial death on his behalf. In chapter 6, Paul talks about our new nature in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are dead to sin. Verses 5 through 7. Christ died, and we have been joined with him by dying too. So we will also be joined with him by rising from the dead as he did. We know that our old life died with Christ on the cross so that our sinful selves would have no power over us and we would not be slaves to sin. 
Anyone who has died is made free from sin's control. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we go from being slaves to sin to slaves to God. Verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verses 22 and 23. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sanctification, my Romans dictionary. Holiness of life, separate from sin and set apart unto God. Chapter 7 tells us as believers in Christ, we are no longer under penalty of the law. This was very important because Paul knew Jews would have many questions about how the law of Moses, the commandments, relates to their faith in Christ. The purpose of the law is to convict people of their sin when they compare themselves to God's standards. The law does not save people. As Christians, we live under the grace of God, and the law can no longer condemn us. This doesn't mean that the law is to be ignored by Christians, that we can do what the law forbids. John MacArthur explains it means that we have freedom from the spiritual liabilities and penalties of God's law. Because we died in Christ when he died, the law with its condemnations and penalties no longer has jurisdiction over us. It is a legal issue. This also doesn't mean that we don't have conflict in our flesh. Chapter 7, verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. John MacArthur explains, the flesh serves as a base camp from which sin operates in the Christian's life. It is not sinful inherently, but because of its fallenness, it is still subject to sin and is thoroughly contaminated. My flesh, the part of the believer's present being that remains unredeemed. Chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. God has given us the ability to live a holy life by giving us the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Verses 12 through 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And as children of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. We have full inheritance in the kingdom with him. Amazing. Verse 17. And if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. How glorious is that? Not only are we heirs, but we are secure in our salvation. Verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in our natural state, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. In our natural state, we reject God. We run away from Him. Nothing we can do by ourselves, no works, can save us from the wrath of a righteous God. But God, in His great mercy, love, and grace, has given us a way to salvation. It is through the sacrifice of His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place on the cross to pay for our sins. He became the sacrificial lamb, taking our sins on himself. Christ's righteousness is then credited to us, and God sees us through him. It is God's grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that we are saved. But what about the Jews? The nation of Israel is God's chosen people. From the beginning, they have been a headstrong people, rejected their God, and have suffered greatly because of it. Has God turned his back on them? Absolutely not. Paul is a Jew. God would never turn his back on Paul. If God could turn his back on his chosen people, then he could turn his back on us. The verses I just read in chapter 8 emphatically refute that premise. Paul's heart breaks for his people, especially since they had the place of prominence as chosen by the one true God. The blessings belonged to them, and the nation turned its back. Paul says in chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, I wish I could help my Jewish brothers and sisters, my people. I would even wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ if that would help them. They are the people of Israel, God's chosen children. They have seen the glory of God, and they have the agreements that God made between himself and his people. God gave them the law of Moses and the right way of worship and his promises. They are the descendants of our great ancestors, And they are the earthly family into which Christ was born, who is God over all. Praise him forever. Amen. What incredible blessings were given to them. Every Jew is a physical descendant of the patriarch Abraham. But not all Jews are children of the promise. Verses 6 to 7a. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But not all Israel has rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. God again, by his grace, has saved a remnant for himself. Chapter 11, verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. The nation of Israel needs Christ, just as everyone needs Christ. Many think the gospel message is foolish, but it is only the power, the omnipotence of God, that is able to overcome man's sinful nature and give him new life. There is no plan B. The gospel can stand up to anyone. There is no inconsistency in the gospel message. It is not illogical. It is the power of God. In the following weeks, we will be studying Romans chapter 11 through 16, learning more about God's plan for his chosen people and how we as Christians are to live for Christ in light of all he has done for us. In mid-March, we will begin our study in the Messianic Psalms. The Psalms, like the entire Holy Scripture, are truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Samuel 23, David testified the Psalms he wrote were inspired by God. 
He realized the Psalms, directed by the Holy Spirit, were the very word of God. 2 Samuel 23, 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares. The man who was raised on high declares. The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Here are excerpts from a book called Messianic Psalms by Norbert Leith. The book of Psalms is the longest book of the Bible, and at least seven authors participated in its writing. We know David, Asaph, Moses, the son of Korah, Solomon, Heman, and Ethan by name. However, there are a number of Psalms whose authors are not mentioned. The Psalms originated during the time of Moses, about 1500 B.C., and continued until after the Babylonian captivity in 5th century BC, spanning therefore about a thousand years. Although the Psalms are divided into five books, they persist as one book. They are written with such unity, however, that they can only be inspired by the Holy Spirit and are therefore referred to as the Book of Psalms. Messianic Psalms are those in which a direct prophetic reference to the Messiah can be found and is then fulfilled in the New Testament. Therefore, these are the Psalms which clearly refer to Jesus. Virtually the entire salvation work of Jesus in the New Testament is already described in the Psalms. For instance, Psalms 22 describes the suffering of Christ on the cross a thousand years before his death and 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. The contact The content is so great that Jesus, in addition to the books of Moses and the prophets, still mentioned the Psalms separately in Luke 22, 44, which says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Through the millennia, both Jews and Christians have drawn much comfort and encouragement from the Psalms. They also provide an overview of the history of salvation from God, from the choosing of Israel to the Jewish remnant in the last days, and the return of Jesus and his royal reign over all nations. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What a wonderful God we serve. I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know the Lord, that he would draw you to himself and that you would respond and accept his gift of salvation he so freely gives. For those of us who know the Lord, I pray we'll live our lives grateful for the incredible blessings we have in him, that we will apply what we learn from God's word to ourselves in our daily lives, living in a manner that would be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are. Lord, that we have such a wonderful, merciful, loving God to serve, Father. I just pray for each and every lady here, Lord, that um, they would have such an appetite for your word, Lord, that our study would go well, that we would learn much, and that we would apply much to our lives, Father, that would be pleasing to you, that we would be good stewards of all that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.